message was given at Hope Church of Knoxville. For more information about Hope Church, please visit our website at hopeknox.com. To, or actually we'll go ahead and read our passage today. I'm going to read, uh, we're not going to preach through the whole passage because uh, once again we have a genealogy that's very significant here um, in building up, but uh, we're going to first read through this section and then we'll pray. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran was the father of Lot. And Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred. In Ur of the Chaldeans, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was uh, Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. And the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, is Iskar. Now Sarah was barren, and she had no children. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, and his grandson, uh, Sarah, and his daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to the land of Canaan. But when they came to uh, Haran, they settled there. These are the days of Terah, were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And the Lord said to Abram, go from, the, uh, go from your country and your father's kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with them, and Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took his wife Sarah, and Lot's, uh, and Lot his brother's son, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they acquired in Haran. And they set um, set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came from the land of Canaan, um, Abr- um, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at the time the Canaanites were uh, in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this, uh, give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country of the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. And with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards Negev. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will show us today from this passage what you have for us to know. I pray that uh, the result of this will not be more head knowledge, that we won't come away um, with a heavy head, but we'll come away with a heavy heart, uh, a head that's been transformed and a heart that's been transformed so that we may desire to give you more glory, whether that be in our homes, our households, um, whether it be in the workplace, wherever that may be. May the results of this passage give us a heart for our city and our heart for our families. May we ultimately give you more glory from this. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, a long time ago, around 1829, the idea of a train was introduced to the American people. And at first, everyone hated the idea. They were going around on horse and carriage, and the idea of a train, they said, it's going to ruin our economy. It's going to be dangerous. People are going to die. It's, it's not something that's safe. We don't want this, we don't want train tracks everywhere. People will fall off these things. The whole people, because it was something they did not even know what it was, they were uncertain, they had fear as a result of it. They were afraid of the unknown. 
And at one point, someone wrote a letter to President Jackson. And this is what the letter says, and I want to read this to you verbatim. It was sent to him on January 31st, 1829. As you, be, as you may know, President, Mr. President, railroad carriages are pulled at an enormous speed of 15 miles per hour. I don't worry you're right there. I think my kid's power wheel goes that fast. <laughs> Which, in addition to endangering life and limb of the passengers, roar and snort their way through the countryside, setting fire to crops, scaring the livestock, and frightening women and children. The Almighty certainly never intended that a people should travel at such breakneck speed. This was the governor of New York who wrote this, by the way. This is not some uneducated person. But they were afraid of it. They were terrified of how fast it may go. And I'd hate to see what he'd think if he saw like a roller coaster. Um, but the, the whole concept of it, it was something that was unknown to them. They were unaware of, a, of what it could do or the, the possibility of how it could actually help their commerce or help them travel from one location to another. We now travel at, at speeds twice that fast, not even on, on a train but in a car. And we can get from one state to another at a, rare, at a pretty quick rate. And things continually seem to go faster. And if you go on a subway, it's even faster than that. But when we come to our passage today, we're going to encounter something very similar to this. We're going to encounter a people who are afraid. They're called to do something. And yet, rather than being afraid, they put their faith in the Lord and they embrace the unknown. They embrace the change, and as a result of that, their lives are forever changed. Let me give you a little background to where we are. Last week we talked about the Tower of Babel. If you remember, I talked about how the, the people of the city, they were trying to make a name for themselves. They wanted to build this huge tower so that when everyone looked at this tower, that they would marvel. It's like when you build something great and you want to show all your friends, hey, check this thing out that I just built. Check out this man cave I've been working on for a few months. This is amazing. It's that same thing. We want people to glory at us. We want people to say, wow, I want that. And that's what these people are doing. Rather than making much of the Lord and making much of the name of the Lord, they wanted to make much of themselves. They wanted their name to be praised. They wanted people to worship them rather than God. And if you remember, I told you, that in this chapter we're going to see how God kind of turns that on its head. Because they didn't want to give God glory, and they wanted to get all the glory for themselves, the very next chapter, God disperses them. And the very next chapter which we come to today, God's going to make much of Abraham. He's going to make his name great. So, last week I also told you, we've been talking about how Genesis is structured by genealogies. There's a genealogy and then a key figure from this genealogy. And I told you that the Tower of Babel and Abraham need to be read together. It's as if they're countering one another. Yet, we begin this story with another genealogy. So why is there a genealogy in between the two? This is a little helpful here. And what I wanted you to see is there's ten generations from Adam to Noah. And then there's ten generations from Noah to Abraham. It's as if Adam starts and he's given this promise and he's called to be fruitful, multiply, and obey the Lord and give glory to the Lord and he fails. He disobeys the Lord. Then Noah comes along. God destroys the entire earth. And yet he's called to be fruitful, multiply. He's given the same commands as Abraham, I mean as, as, as Adam. 
And just like Adam fell by the fruit of the tree, he falls by the fruit of the vine. Then, ten generations later, the next one, what it's building up to, it's not just that we're focused on generations. What it's building up to is in Genesis 3.15, God promised one day a seed was going to come. And this seed was going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to fix the sin problem. And they're constantly waiting. Is this the one? Is this the child who's going to redeem us? And it goes from ten generations, which is a sign of completeness, to Noah. And Lamech names Noah the one who would deliver us from the seed of the lamb, the curse of the land. It's as if he he sees and hopes that Noah is going to be the one who's going to fix us or fix save us from the sin problem. Then Noah fails us. Well, ten generations after that, we now come to a man named Abraham. Is he going to be the seed? Is he the promised one who's going to deliver us from this curse? Let's look and see. I think we start to get to see that here, whether or not he will. Let's go down to verse 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you. So they're currently in Ur, the land of Chaldeans. So this is why you always hear Abraham referred to Abram of Chaldeans or Abraham of Ur. And the significance of this place, it's where Babylonia is located at. It's where you hear about the Babylonians. And I want to give you a little context before I explain what I think is significant about him being called to leave this land. Joshua 24.2 says this, And Joshua said to all his people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, so that's Abram's father, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Why is this significant for us? Abraham is living in a land with his father, serving false gods. He's not serving the true God, Yahweh. And God calls him. He says, I want you to leave that. Leave everything that you know and follow me. And I'm going to take you to a land that you do not know. You may think this seems pretty far away from us. But let me be honest with you guys. This is the gospel. We're all serving false gods. We're serving pagan gods in a land that we're very comfortable in. And God calls us. He tells us to abandon that. He tells us to leave that. To leave this country that we don't know. And to leave serving these false gods. Whether that be money or sex or drugs. Whatever that is. A a job or family. Whatever we're keeping as our own idols, the gods in our own lives, our houses. He calls us to leave that and serve Him alone. And only when you are following Him will those things start to make sense. We'll be able to actually truly love your family. We'll be able to truly love your job. We'll be able to truly serve your community. When you have the right priorities... Rather than having them as the thing you worship, when God is the thing you worship. He's calling him to abandon his security, the things that he finds comfortable, that he knows, and pursue God. He doesn't give him a detailed map. He doesn't give him his Garmin GPS and say, here's all the directions, just follow them and all's going to be good. No, he says, follow me. Go to this land. 
You don't know anything about it. You don't know what's going to happen to you there. You don't know when you get to Canaan, you're going to have to fight wars and many of your closest friends are going to die. Follow me. The struggle is going to be painful. It'll be difficult. But you get the Lord. Just like in our lives. When you abandon all those things and you start pursuing the Lord, the struggle is going to be there. You're not going to have an ease-free life. It's not easy believism. You're called to be faithful, to turn from your old way and pursue the Lord. And you get Jesus. That's enough. It's not safe. My favorite stories of Chronicles of Narnia, um, whole series. Me and the kids are reading through uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe right now, actually. And um, at one point, the kids come and they're talking. They hear about Aslan for the first time. Aslan's the the great lion who's supposed to portray God or Christ more more specifically. And um, they hear about Aslan, and Aslan's supposed to come when these four children go into Narnia. And he's supposed to save them from this wicked witch. These kids hear about this great lion and he's he's told to be greater than all lions. And they ask, but is he safe? Is Aslan safe? They hear about a lion. They've never seen talking lions before. They go from the normal world to seeing this, hearing about this great lion who rules the entire world. And they say, is he safe? And their response has always stuck with me. Their response was this. No, he's not safe. But he's good. And I think that's the truth. Following the Lord is not safe. Being faithful to the Lord is not safe. You will very likely be hated. People will think you're weird and radical. Why do you guys talk about the Lord when you could be talking about other things? You know, why, do you, why do you spend your time in this place when you could be sleeping in on Sunday mornings? You look weird to the world. And that's a good thing. But he's not safe. But there's security in following him. Because you get Jesus. You may have a difficult, struggle-filled life. I think about people in other countries, like especially with all the ISIS stuff going in the news where Christians are having, they're being beheaded. As soon as they put their faith in Christ, literally their entire family abandons them. And oftentimes they're beheaded or put in prison just for putting their faith in Christ. That is not safe. But you have to weigh the cost. You get this world for a few moments or do you get Jesus? That's what you have to determine. What's of more value? God calls Abraham to leave and go. And he counts the cost and realizes obedience to the Lord is greater than any struggle this world can offer. Look what he says next to him. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Notice... All these promises, all these things that Babel wanted, they wanted their name to be great, they wanted their name in the, in the stars, and, and they wanted their name, the name to be proclaimed throughout the earth. They wanted to be on the front page of the newspaper. They wanted to be the famous actors of the world, if you want to think of it that way. And the Lord crushed their dreams. 
And now Abraham, because of his obedience, look what he says. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great. And I will bless you. But also pay close attention to this next section here. So that you will be a blessing. All too often we get so focused and we only focus on justification. You know, if we can get these people to put their faith in Christ, to pray this prayer, and we forget there's more to life than just a prayer. You've got the rest of your life. We get so focused on the sinner's prayer and we think that's the focus. If that was the only thing we're put here on to do is to get people to pray a prayer then why is it that after you pray the prayer, you don't go straight to heaven? It's because we're called to do something. When Jesus prays, the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we're called to make heavenly realities true here on earth. We're called to reflect that which is true in heaven down here on earth. We're called to show the world what it looks like when King Jesus rules our lives, our marriages, our churches, and in our jobs. We're called to show the world what it looks like when Jesus rules in anticipation of His future rule and reign where sin is crushed and He is ruling all. Are you doing that today? Are you Through your life, through your words, through the way that you interact with your friends, through the way you joke around with your friends at work, are you declaring to them that Jesus rules your life? Are you being a blessing to the nation? Are you serving those around you? Are you loving those around you? Are you loving your community? This is ultimately going to find its fulfillment in Christ. But we're also called to be a blessing. Next on to verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. This is very interesting. In Genesis 3, the, literally the curses that are laid out here are countered one for one, point for point. All the curses that are laid upon Adam, God promises blessings to Abraham, one for one. It's as if through the seed of Abraham, the curse of Adam is going to be crushed and eliminated. So what's, what's up with this land? Why are they going back to this land? Why does he call them to this land? What's the significance of this land? Canaan, we always hear about people talking about Israel. What's, what's the significance of the land? Is it the actual land itself? Let me read a verse to you in Genesis 13. And I think this will help us see the significance of the land. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. The goal of this land was a place where God could dwell, a place that was like the Garden of Eden. The significance of the Garden of Eden was not all the beautiful things that were inside of it. It was the fact that God was there. The beauty of Israel was the temple. The fact that God was located in the temple. He dwelt in the temple. That's why Israel was so great. It wasn't something magical about the land. It was the fact that that's where God dwelled with His people. 
And if we want to understand the significance of the land, the significance of God calling Abram to Canaan, it's not just a land, it's where God is going to be. He, he's going to a place where he knows the Lord wants him to be. There is no greater comfort than knowing you're in the will of the Lord. There's no greater place than being with his church in his presence. Because that's where God is. He is with his people. That is joy. That is comfort when you're in the presence of the Lord. So where does this blessing come from? I'm going to turn the page a little bit here. Psalm 72, 17 says this. May His name endure forever. So naturally you want to start asking yourself, who is this looking forward to? May His name endure forever. May His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed by Him. All nations call Him blessed. So how is this promise to Abraham that all the nations are going to be blessed through him ultimately going to be fulfilled? How is God going to be faithful to this promise? It's through Christ coming and sending his disciples, like we talk about in Acts, to the nations so that they get to sing and they get to proclaim the name above all names. They get to proclaim Jesus is king and ruler over all. Are you putting your faith in this Christ? Are you, are you putting your hope in the fact that He is the one, He is the one through which you receive the blessings of God? Are you trusting the Lord? Are you abandoning your old life and clinging to the cross? Let's, let's read this last section here together now. Verse 4. So Abram went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions that he had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set to go out to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to, which, uh, to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and they appeared... And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I'll give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord. And he appeared to him. And he moved to the hill country of the east of Bethel and pitched a tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going to Negev. So, do you guys remember what Noah did as soon as he got off the ark? He set up an altar. He set up an altar. It's a form of worship. Why did he do that? What happens when Abraham gets to this new land that God has promised him? What's the first thing that he does? He sets up an altar. It's a form of worship. But more significantly, it's, it's declaring that I'm reclaiming. Canaan was full of false gods. It was full of, of pagans. The Canaanites throughout the rest of the, of the Bible we're going to see are, a, are a people that are at odds with God. Who are at odds with the promises of God. They're constantly fighting with the Israelites. So they go into this pagan land and they take it over. And what do they do? They reclaim the land by setting it up on an altar saying, This land is the Lord's. 
Just like with Noah. God destroys the earth and all its sinfulness. And then He sets up an altar reclaiming this new land for the Lord. This is the Lord's. And everywhere He go, He's setting up altars. Great 16th century theologian once said this. Abram or Abraham endeavored to dedicate this land by perfuming it with the odor of his faith by setting up the altars of the Lord. He's, he's setting up perfume, odoring the faith to show this is the Lord's land. He's, he's making the smell or the aroma of the Lord and his faith throughout this land. So, let me ask you this. Are you setting up altars in your life? Are you reclaiming? I'm not just allegorizing this. What I'm saying is he's, he's taking these altars and by burning these altars, he's worshiping the Lord and reclaiming this land for its rightful owner, the Lord. Are you reclaiming your marriages? Are you reclaiming your jobs, your friendships? Are you declaring that these are the Lord's? May the, the aroma of your faith be incense to the Lord. May when people see your lives, they say, truly this man loves the Lord. Or are we still worshiping false gods in a false land, afraid to step out in faith and follow Him? Where are you at in the story? Are you still in error, worshiping false gods, building up your own kingdoms? Are you on the journey of faith, Participating in this new exodus, if you want to think of it that way. Pursuing the promised land the Lord has called you to. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then ask Jeremy to come up. And we'll have a time of reflection before we go to the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to learn from Abraham. Thank you for the story of Abraham. May we have faith and obedience as he May we leave the false gods and idols in our life and realize obedience to you is greater and having you is greater than any trouble or struggle this world may offer. I may be down, but if I have Christ, you are enough. Make this true in our lives. Help us repent of our apathy Help us be faithful and obedient and pursue you on a regular basis. May we repent of our sins and our false gods that are in life and run to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.